Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 19th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Minister for Integration, Roderick O'Gorman, has been explaining why the government needs to lease properties like the D Hotel in Drogheda in order to house asylum seekers. There is real pressure on the international protection side. There are The numbers arriving are increasing. Uh, it, is a, it is a factor of, as I said, of wars. I have no doubt that changes in, in the UK as well is also a, a, an element to that. The Minister was responding to questions in Shannon Aaron last week about some of the concerns people have with accommodating 500 international protection applicants in Drogheda's D Hotel. But we will work closely in our department and other departments will work closely with Loud County Council, with local development companies, with all interested parties. And I know there has been a strong welcome for um, people from different countries in the, in the Drogheda area in recent years. And we will work with everybody in terms of, uh, in, in, in terms of putting in place the necessary supports uh, that we can. And people will be looking to see what those supports are to help local services cope with the arrival of 500 new residents into Drogheda. It's history as a town in terms of fostering integration over a long-term basis, even more recently in, in recent years as, tar- as, as part of the response to both international protection and to uh, U- 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 Ukrainian needs. And I, I, I don't deny for a moment that the decision in terms of the use of the D Hotel has an impact for that town. I don't, I, I, I don't deny it. And I know our department will be engaging today with Loud County Council at chief executive level in terms of how we can work together because we will work with all um, parties of good faith in Drogheda who, who want to make this work. And the government will continue its commitment to Drogheda and that, that, that commitment is demonstrable, I think, in terms of the support for the Drogheda Implementation Board, in terms of support for a tourism in Drogheda, in East Meath, so we can continue to, to draw people to that, uh, to, that, to that particular area. So we will work, and there are government schemes in terms, government has made it clear, there'll be a new community a round of community recognition payments, again, looking to target additional state investment in areas where, which are hosting significant numbers of both international protection and, um, and uh, U- U- Ukrainians fleeing the war. So at last we hear from uh, the Minister Roderick O'Gorman about this issue which certainly has occupied the minds of a lot of people over the course of uh, the last week or so. Let's speak to our reporter Eamon Doyle who's on the line. Good morning to you uh, and uh, thanks for joining us Eamon. Do you think that those commitments that we heard the Minister give there in those clips will help to reassure people who have been saying this is as much as a disaster? Yeah, well, uh, let's hope and see. Um, they said that they're going to um, talk to councillors and uh, and we'll take it from there. But 
Um, I was at the uh, protest the other day. Um, I've spoke to a number of people um, from Drogheda uh, and indeed I spoke to some of them from uh, Drogheda yesterday at the Louth against the, the Mead game and just dealing with the protest, I suppose. You know, it was a few uh, unelected voices that spoke of Ireland is our land and, and waving tricolours is not what the people of Drogheda are concerned about and really it's a distraction and indeed it's irrelevant uh, to the acute problems now facing Drogheda and presented as the done deal, which was last week. So it is interesting to hear what the minister has to say, but we will now have to see, is he going to uh, follow it up? Now, Drogheda people are welcoming these people uh, to uh, the D Hotel, but, you know, it is a disaster, uh, the repurposing of, of the hotel, you know, with any lack of grand plan is the problem. Uh, and it's now hard um, to see, you know, how far Drogheda has come, as you know, in recent times uh, with the gangland feuds, etc., the investment in tourism, the development of, of the ancient East. Drogheda is, a, you know, a, a vibrant town and trying to grow tourism industry and a world heritage mm. site, Newgrange Millmount. So, you know, these things are all there. And yeah. the D Hotel, you know, losing that hotel is certainly uh, not going to help. Uh, and people have been concerned about visitors coming to the town of Drogheda and visitors will come to Drogheda for many reasons. Yes, like, oh, you know, there's plenty of people uh, will come to, to Drogheda uh, to visit uh, and, and people are saying, well, there are other places that they can stay. I heard somebody mentioning, uh, you know, the Crown Plaza, for instance, in Dundalk. But uh, the Comedy Festival, for instance, has been pulled out of the D Hotel now and other uh, things that's happening uh, later on in the year. And where will those people stay uh, if they if they want to stay in Drogheda, where it's handy to get around, walk around uh, in Drogheda without having to travel from outside of the town. I think, you know, the people of Drogheda, as I say, welcome these people, but it really has got to do with funding, funding and more funding. And where is it going to come from? Mm, uh, because people had been hoping to build Drogheda up as a, a tourist town, uh, something uh, which uh, would be very different uh, from its heritage, if you like, the history of Drogheda. Yes, indeed. Do you know what I mean? But I think, too, as well, when you go back uh, to the uh, hotel, you know, sold in 2023 for, uh, what, 10 million, it'll be paid potentially 25 million by the government over the two years, uh, full uh, occupancy of 500 people. You know, and is, is this the best way that the money could be used? And this is what people are saying. Is there other buildings in Drogheda that could have been better used and developed to allow local tourist industry to grow mm. and the town's identity develop without uh, taking out the hotel in the middle of the centre of Drogheda? Indeed, or could the £25 million have been invested in property that the government would own uh, for the two years and then beyond that? Uh, there's also concern about local services, of course. Yeah, well, that that has been mentioned as well of of the local services um, of, you know, the GPs, uh, you know, there's what, 40,000 people, I suppose, living in around Drogheda. And it's already struggling with these services and the healthcare, local GP services. You know, there are apparently no GPs taking on patients and, and, and the lists, you know, and in fact, in Dundalk, in my own town as well, that is similar, sim something similar. It is very hard now to get a GP. Uh, so... You know, what? what is the plans for that? We know the pressure that's on A&E, uh, you know, and these people that are coming now, there's some of these are victims of abuse. They're victims of trauma, of torture. So where will these 
people go to get these GP services. They've, they've signed the deal, the government, and the deal is done. But like, what is the plan going forward to look after these people? And I think that's where uh, the the likes of Minister Fergus O'Dowd and the various other councillors and ministers that they're meeting uh, the council uh, over the next number of days and, and talking to the government. And I think these are the things that they really need to drill into mm. and and to get done and not accept that, you know, something will be done or mm. kicking the can down the road, so in, to speak. Indeed, Deputy O'Dowd, uh, I think all of the TDs, uh, Nash and Munster, uh, who are based in Drogheda, uh, have raised these questions with uh, the Minister and the local councillors, as we've been hearing, want to meet as well with Roderick O'Gorman. Yeah, well, it will be interesting to hear, um, and I'm sure you're going to have uh, perhaps some of these um, on your show. In actual fact, I did meet Jed Nash yesterday um, at the match between Loud and Meath in Navan, um, and he had just said this to me, that there is negotiations ongoing, uh, there is talks ongoing. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what comes out um, of those talks and how is the, the, the local economy and the local government functions like... Like the local enterprise and, and the market forces like have, have been removed from the people of Drogheda. They've been blindsided by this, Michael, by the, the lack of consultation, by allowing the new owners like really to offload the D hotel. And it's a totally business decision, mm. you know what I mean? And it is for them, but it's an easy solution for the department, I feel, you know, and, and Drogheda has been a soft target. It shows the government, you know, has a total lack of an, a national plan for migrants who, of course, need to be welcomed uh, and provided by and, and it just shows the total lack of awareness of Drogheda's developing tourism, which we're talking about, the industry and the aspirations as a, a cultural tourist destination. So the local representatives need to negotiate a better deal and, and migrate for the, the loss of the hotel beds and for the increase in the resources that will be required to welcome uh, the international protection migrant families. You mentioned uh, the protest that took place in uh, Drogheda on Saturday. Tell us a, a little bit more about that because there was some anxiety, I think, in advance of uh, the protest with Gardaí deciding to close the Marsh Road between 1 and 4. I think there were fewer shoppers said to be in uh, the town than would normally be the case on a, a Saturday. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, there was a number of people who turned up uh, to protest test. Uh, some shops actually I think stayed closed or, or on Saturday as well uh, in case uh, there might have been uh, scenes that were seen at other protests but it was a, a, a very quiet affair. It, it passed off uh, very peacefully. O- only a couple of hundred people turned up as such. Yeah look it really was very peaceful uh, and and there really was nothing too much about it. Um, there were a number of people from Drogheda arrived down really just out of curiosity to stand and have a look and have a listen and then just really um, head it off. The people who were there are a very small minority and they really don't talk for the people of Drogheda. So I did decide that I would go into Scotch Hall Shopping Centre and uh, I decided to get myself a coffee and actually bought a book and decided that I'd just have a little uh, wander around. Um, the, the shopping centre itself uh, was uh, very quiet uh, and not an awful lot of people were around the place in actual fact, which which I did notice. And I even thought to myself, even that the people that were there that actually were from out of town 
Uh, it would have been nice if they had gone into the shopping centre maybe and per- perhaps spent a few euro uh, in Drogheda there on Saturday. It might have uh, helped uh, considering that maybe some people just decided to um, stay away and, and not be in and around anywhere uh, around the march or anything like that, or indeed uh, the the protest. Mm, it was organised by the Irish uh, Freedom Party, and uh, I, I think it was an opportunity for them to launch their local election candidates, and they talked about a, a number of issues, issues that is other than immigration. Yeah, well, they did, yeah. You know what I mean? Again, like, you know, they talked about plantation and they talked about, you know, Ireland for um, the Irish and, and various other things like mm. that. Um, well, you know, they talk about crime, murder, rape. Uh, talk as well about the referendums and mm. some other moral issues, I think, as well. Yeah, well, the they, never, they, they mm. never really spoke anything about the actual D-Hotel, you know what I mean, and what did it mean uh, to draw it, like the comedy festival, like, you know, will will they be able to hold uh, the FLA, for instance, cultural festivals, comedy, music, there was absolutely none of that. Uh, People that were there too that got up to speak, I know that uh, a number of them were uh, going to be standing in the local elections to represent the party. You know, one spoke for about two and a half minutes, didn't have anything else to say, had nothing else really to offer and asked then for the chairman maybe to get somebody else to speak because they had forgot what they were going to say and they ran out of something to talk about, Uh, which was quite interesting that this person is going for election and could only talk about for two minutes about Drogheda and, you know, what it meant. Uh, So, you know, that exactly wasn't uh, great. And then other people got up, but it was just the norm, just the same stuff over and over and over. Nothing really about the good of Drogheda and what it means to Drogheda. And a lot of people uh, that were there the other day did travel from various places and perhaps were the first time that they were in Drogheda uh, in their lives. And, you know, when you watch some of the stuff on on social media and different things like that, there were different people uh, from the party that were down uh, and, and they were interviewing other people. And they didn't even know who was standing uh, for election. Uh, one person had to say, well, it's such and such that's standing here. So they don't even know who's standing for their own party in Drogheda. OK, interesting. We leave it there. Thank you indeed. Eamon Doyle. Now, if you'd like to make comment on that, we'd to hear from you. Our phone number is 0419832000. That's 0419832000 if you want to give us a call this morning uh, and tell us uh, what you think about the D Hotel or anything else for that matter. Incidentally, we'll be speaking with Labour Party TD Jed Nash later in the programme about comments made by the Taoiseach over the weekend that uh, the hotel could become a dual-purpose hotel one section for international protection applicants, the asylum seekers, and uh, another section then for paid hotel guests, that it would be this dual-purpose hotel uh, that uh, Jed Nash had been proposing last week. Uh, If you want to make comment by text, our text or WhatsApp number is 086-1800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, is there any prospect of a United Ireland or a reunited Ireland, as uh, the case may be? Well, no, not according to the latest poll. It's a Lucas talk survey for the Belfast Telegraph, and it says that 49% of people in Northern Ireland are in favour of staying in the UK. 39% say they want a reunited Ireland. But that 
changes dramatically when you start to speak to younger people under the age of 45. When you speak to 18 to 24-year-olds, 48% of those want a united Ireland compared to 43% who want to remain members of the United Kingdom. Between the 25 to 34-year-old age group, 45% want a united Ireland compared to 41% who want to stay in the United Kingdom. And 44% of 35 to 44-year-olds want a united Ireland, 42% don't. It makes for interesting reading. Let's speak to Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Mead, Rory O'Murku. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Maybe uh, United, Reunited Ireland is in the gift of the next generation. Um, well, look, like I, I think most people and like ourselves that like think there needs to be a border poll and obviously we think that the fact that this is a possibility and that people are talking about it north and south and even beyond, particularly in the Irish diaspora, that I think logic would state that you know this state in particular should at least make plans. And in fairness, like you're talking about that 49%, that's in the context of you know nothing happening, of the preparation work that hasn't begun properly. So therefore, obviously everyone's got frightened by the Brexit referendum and no point having a referendum without the facts on the table. And like unionists are hardly going to do that. So we need to rely on an Irish government that has the capacity and has started some of the work, but not enough of it to actually get on with it. We're obviously all delighted that the executive Mm. is up and running. We want to see um, that uh, that does its absolute best from a point of view of improving uh, lives for those in the north and dealing with ourselves cross-border, that we do all those things that improve our society and improve the lives of uh, regular people. Um, But that doesn't mean that there isn't uh, a serious prospect in the near future of a border poll. And then see within that period, because we're not, you know, we've all talked about five and ten years. And I think if you look at this, you're talking about 52 percent of Mm. people who are polled said they aspire to Irish unity at some point in the future. Now, some of them differ whether they want to see this within 10 years or within 20 years. But I think what we need to see is that preparatory work done and then we can have uh, the conversation. Conversation And look, I wouldn't expect unionists and particularly a hardcore of them to be anything other than against the possibility of ever having a border poll. And look, no one has anything to fear from uh, democracy. And the point that you've made is, as time goes on, you're dealing with demographics where support for Irish unity, the younger cohorts you're dealing with the higher the support there is for Irish unity. I think all of this is positive. I think it's all going in the right direction. Why why do you think that is the case, though? Why why do you think that more younger people would favour, if if it was a a vote uh, that those under 45 participated in, it it probably would carry, but as things stand, it, it, it would not. That's according to the poll. But why do you think that is the case? Is it because of life experience and that younger people don't remember the troubles the same way and don't have the same antagonism, uh, if you like, depending on which way you're looking at it, in both directions. I, I would also say sometimes younger people are more hopeful, you know. I, I would. There's also an element of demographic change here. Um, I, look, we've spoken about this many times before and Brexit was a complete game changer for a considerable amount of people who would not have considered themselves to be United Ireland now see United Ireland as that sensible solution in relation to ensuring the North is back within the European Union. And I have no doubt among unionists and, and, you know, sometimes all we have is this anecdotally, 
that they may be still be unionists, but they are unionists probably uh, with less of the trenchant views that you might have got in the 1980s. Look, you've seen that the fact that the DUP were able to uh, go into um, basically an executive with uh, Michelle O'Neill as the first nationalist uh, first minister. Um, you have Jim Allister almost on his own and outside of a couple of commentators like, you know, Jamie Bryson. Uh, they're, they're a sideshow. We are very far removed from Jim Molyneux and Ian Paisley back in Ulster says no mode. So, look, I, I, I think, you know, what's happening at the moment in the North is very hopeful. Uh, I think what will happen cross-border and even east-west can be very hopeful into the future. Mm. And I think the fact that this polling happen is happening is telling you that people are interested and a considerable amount of them want to see a border poll. They may differ in relation to the time frame. I think even those that don't want to see it think it's going to happen. Like we had Peter Robinson and others saying that before. They actually were saying unionism needed to get its act together from a point of view of being prepared, mm. you know, to to have those arguments and fight that but, out. And but I some people nationally. have drawn a line in the sand. 48% of unionists say that they feel strong, so strongly about their British identity that they wouldn't consider any other option when it came to a poll. That's in a poll, and you're, yeah, and, and they're considering that. And there, that there will be some amount of unionists who will stay unionists. There will be... But you have seen, even in relation to nationalism, uh, you know, it's not a monolith. People vary on particular issues, and and times change. And right, here's another thing. We all know the particular issues that pertain in the South, whether we're talking about housing and all the other crises that we have at the minute, even the issues that there are in relation to the immigration system and whatever else that we have at this point in time. See if we can show a hopeful means of providing a government of change. I know I would say that. But if we can show that we can get a handle on all these things, I think the idea of a United Ireland, which wouldn't be just joining the North and South, would be the creation of something better. I know a considerable amount of people have issues in relation to the health service. That's both North and South. And I think we need a fully, if we can show... Uh, a roadmap towards a working universal healthcare system and a proper national health service. You know, I think all those things make those arguments. But again, the preparatory work needs to be done. But I think looking at this poll, we are not starting from a bad place. Mm. Um, and, and I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I think we're not starting from mm. a, a bad place. And I think, as I say, an argument and, and a, a requirement that will be on us as well will be for those people who are unionists mm. and may still vote for maintaining the union. It's that we at least ensure that what we can offer them with any United Ireland is, is something that they're not absolutely antagonistic okay, to. But you, you'd and accept again, that on the findings of this poll that a United Ireland is not within touching distance. I wouldn't say that at all, because here what we're talking about is, and any of us who have spoken about this, we're not talking about having a referendum next week. We're talking about having the preparatory work done, and we're talking about having a proper time-framed referendum where we can have all the arguments. Now, we've spoken about a citizens' assembly, and, and I know that both the Tarnished and Taoiseach have spoken about that they don't believe that's the correct forum um, in relation to you know dealing with these issues then there's an onus on them to come up with a forum that actually works because all we need to do is a means by which those that want to engage in the conversation can talk about what a new Ireland would look like and then we know that the shared island unit could be the lead in relation to making sure we do all those preparatory work 
like even some of the work the similar that had been done before the Scottish referendum in the sense they had a, the document of Scotland's future where as many things as you could lay out in relation to the economy and wider issues are down on paper so people can have that full and frank argument. Okay. Now I would say we've seen the advantages in the South. We know that we know the difficulties and I think we can deal with them and I think younger people realise that too. They are hopeful in relation to change that can happen across the island. They've seen it in the North with Michelle O'Neill at this point in time. Um, and I think that we need to show that we can we can put a better system of government across this island rather than a British government that doesn't care, never will care, and will always play its own game. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Meath, where you're working. Michael Reed on LMFM. The government is said to be infuriated with leaked reports coming from RTE about golden handshakes with the Taoiseach, the Taunisha, a number of ministers over the weekend saying they want transparency from RTE. RTE is concerned about confidentiality agreements and if they reveal what they have paid out in golden handshakes, uh, well, then that could result in litigation against RTA. The Minister for Media is Catherine Martin, and she's asked uh, the Director General of RTA, Kevin Backhurst, as well as uh, the Chair of uh, the Board, Shun Nirahali, to meet with her today. Let's speak to Shane Castles, Fianna Fáil Centre, Senator, who's a member of uh, the Media Committee. Uh, a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us, Senator Castles. Uh, what questions do you think the Minister should be asking of of uh, the RTA executives today? Well, I'm glad that she called them in, Michael. That's the first thing. Um, it's, it's taken long enough. I, I know she was operating for a number of months at a kind of arm's length and, you know, allowing us to do our work, which is right and proper. But equally, she ultimately is the minister. And I think we've had a, a case of a kind of merry-go-round. And I, I'm glad that there's, that action is happening this morning, that they're being brought in uh, to account for themselves because we have a scenario where... Witnesses, including the Director General, come to Oireachtas committees as, you know, just last Wednesday in front of our own and then purport to not be able to answer questions. Subsequent from that, leak the answers to the very questions that were being asked uh, and we continue this uh, get by a thousand cuts. So I think they do themselves a damn sight of good work if they're actually honest this morning with the Minister. And obviously one of the first key questions is, is confidential? confidentiality clauses were inserted into deals. Why in God's name were they inserted in the first ha- in the first uh, case given that we were promised by the new Director General a new way of doing business? If it is a case that Kevin Backhurst as Director General of RTE wanted to clean the decks of his executive, which he was uh, which he re-emphasised last Wednesday in front of us as a kind of a badge of honour that he'd been doing this, that he'd been getting rid of people through the side door. Crucially, though, he wasn't sacking them. What he was doing was getting them out the side door on pay packages. And that's the key thing I would be asking. If you wanted rid of mm. these people, why didn't you sack them? Why is it a case that people were actually getting uh, bonuses and pay packages on the way out the door when they had failed the organisation. And who, who are you referring to there? Is it Rory Coveney specifically? Yeah, well, key, key, well, key, key to that, Michael, and, you know, when we reflect on that, it was actually myself in questioning Kevin Backhurst that extracted from him uh, when I put it to him, and I asked him, was Rory Coveney uh, afforded uh, an exit package? And he confirmed mm. to me that he did. Remember, 
Rory Coveney is the former director of strategy for RT who was overseeing such debacles as Thai Show the Musical. Uh, but he would not reveal to me the amount uh, citing confidentiality. However, an hour or so later, during the same uh, hearing, he was able to reveal uh, how much the former chief financial officer, Breed O'Keefe, was paid in her exit package and uh, uh, um, eye-watering €450,000. So why? Why the difference in he was able to reveal one, but he wasn't the other, when he had mm. already said that Breed O'Keefe was also party to a confidentiality clause? It, he, it doesn't bode well, especially for a man who said that he's trying to do business in, in, in a different manner. Uh, and I think he's got some big questions for a man. Remember, Breed O'Keefe, in fairness, her exit package was negotiated under the former Director General of OG, D Forbes, mm. who won't mm. appear herself, citing medical it's reasons before well, us. Yes, is not well. Mm. Uh, and so you could say, well, look, he didn't negotiate that exit package. But on Rory Coveney, he was the boss. The book stopped with him. He wanted him out the door. Mm. That's grand. We can understand that. This is a man, remember, Rory Coveney, who presided over, as we have seen from the Grand Thornton Report, and we ex- we went through these details last Wednesday, over a €2.3 million euro debacle in Toy Show the Musical that was conceived and implemented really on a whim when he conceived what was revealed last week, that scripts for the show were only dickied up months before it started. It, 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 it's no wonder it, it failed when you see the kind of uh, the mishap management that went into it. And if it is a case that someone resulted in a loss of nearly two and a half million to an organisation, why in God's name would you give them a thank you payment of the way out the door? Um, when you what? said, Sorry, go ahead. No, when, you, when, when really any of, us, any of the rest of us would be just given the boot. Uh, well, what I, do you I, make I, of the I, payment? Uh, it's been reported that there was a golden handshake of €200,000. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if, if it is a case that this is how Mr. Backhurst wanted to relieve uh, and they came to an arena. I pressed him on this because I asked him on the circumstances of him leaving and he indicated that Mr. Coveney had said to him that the situation would be better if things continued without him. Well, if that's it, just thank you, clear the desk and leave. Who did he seek the payment as part of that, uh, uh, as part of that uh, leaving RTE? Was it offered to him? These are the kind of details we know. We need to know from the point of view of how Kevin Backhurst is doing his business with an RTE as the Director General. Because ultimately, these guys are still sitting in there last Wednesday with their handout asking us to bail out RTE. That's the point. And that's the issue in terms of whether we actually have confidence in those in place to actually then administer the public funds that they are seeking off the taxpayer. Mm. Uh, do you believe that really what you're looking at is more of the same, that little has changed in tops, in terms of uh, perception, uh, self-importance, uh, if it can be put that way, and uh, entitlement, uh, perhaps, uh, despite uh, the new DG coming into situ? Well, certainly the people on the way out the door felt that they were entitled to money. Um, what's annoying me is whether they then uh, that was SUS to, uh, and how that came about. Was it sought? Was it offered? Um, and, and that's what's really getting under people's you know, skin this morning. And I think that the minister now has a job of work to really hammer that home to the director general and to the chair of the board as well. Mm. You know, there's a board there uh, overseeing all of this as well, or as was the case, as was kind of, as people viewing in last Wednesday, quite clearly it was evident, you know, they weren't overseeing 
I mean, they were duped to begin with. Uh, but that's no that's no defence either. And I think that there is going to be a case now that if you've got an organisation that is now openly seeking the help of the government and the taxpayer uh, to run, to fund their operation, something, by the way, and I want to say it again, I, I am not in favour of the director exception uh, model for, for RTE. I have repeated it over and over again. This is an organisation that is well fit to be able to make nearly 200 million euro in commercial income themselves in their own sphere. If LMFM was about to go bust in the morning, uh, there wouldn't be a bailout from uh, the government for LMFM. What I do think that we need is an overall media fund recognising that independent radio and newspapers and things like Virgin Media, if we're going to have proper journalism, needs to be funded. And it shouldn't be just a purview of RTE. I have a problem with that. And so I know there's people calling for direct exchequer funding for RTE. I'm not supporting Mm. that. I don't think it's right and proper. And I think that if we're going to create a media fund, LMFM, Virgin Media, uh, the newspapers, everyone should be able to be entitled to that, not just RTE. Yeah, but the horse has bolted, hasn't it, in terms of the payments. Uh, There's no getting back the €450,000 that was given to Brida O'Keefe to thank her for her services over the years with RTE, or the 200000 if that is what was paid to Rory Coveney after he decided to step down uh, on foot of the failure of Toy Show, the musical, and the loss of 2.3 million euro. Yeah, I mean, it is a catastrophe of errors. And when you see, for example, that it was disclosed that the payment to Breed O'Keefe is probably legally sound, because regardless of the fact that it wasn't actually signed off by the executive board, she was given a letter that actually says in black and white it was signed off by the executive board as was uh, illustrated last Wednesday. And that's the kind of, you know, the the series of errors that are really just annoying people and going, you guys aren't, you know, you weren't fit to be able to run this organisation. And as you said, a sense of entitlement. And uh, we're sorry, but here we're back again looking for you guys to bail us out. Uh, that's what makes us mad. That's what makes me doubly mad in terms of how these things uh, have been run. You're probably right, Michael, uh, in terms of being able to get m- money back. We, we've seen it before. We saw it with the Tuberty thing. He walked off with 150 grand for monies for jobs that weren't done in terms of those payments. He was asked for the money back. That he was asked, Kevin Backhurst was asked again last Wednesday, has that money been returned? It hasn't. And legally, they can't get that back. Okay. Uh, that's, what's, that's what's annoying people. And this has to come to an end. It has to come to an end also in the, in the case of we're going to be drawing up reports. And I think the Minister's intervention this morning and actually maybe saying to Kevin Backhurst and Shuna Rahalik, guys, this has gone on for too long. You need to put all that information into the public domain so this can be, become public. Uh, and we'll look at the consequences legally after that. OK. Senator Castles, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Shane Castles is a Fianna Fáil Senator. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, on the 8th of March, you're going to be asked to cast your vote on two referendums uh, to change the constitution or not as uh, the case may be. What do you know about these referendums? Well I hope that you will inform yourself. Uh, There's an opportunity to do that if you're not sure about the upcoming referendums in County Mead this evening. Let's speak uh, to local Fine Gael councillor Yemi Adenuga. And a very good morning to you, Yemi. You've organised this meeting that's going to take place in the Ardboyne Hotel. Tell us a, a little bit about what's in store, if you would, please. Good morning, Michael, and thank you very much for having me. Um, as you know, our constitution is a fundamental law of Ireland, and it, uh, it reflects who we are and the values that we hold dear as a country. 
Now, the purpose of the referendum, of any referendum, is to update our constitution to reflect the values of Ireland in which we live today. So in recent times, as I've been engaging with constituents and canvassing, a number of people have asked me questions about the referendum. Some are not sure what exactly they've been asked to vote on. Some don't even know that there's a referendum coming. Mm. Uh, so in, in order to enable people have a clearer understanding of uh, what they're asked to vote on, I'm hosting an information evening tonight at the Adborn Hotel at 7 p.m. Just so people have the opportunity to ask questions and have clarity. Mm. There are two proposed changes to the Constitution, as it were. They tighten the 39th Amendment, which is on the family, and the 40th Amendment, which is the one on the care. And the 39th one, um, it deals with uh, two articles, articles 41.1.1 and articles 41.3.1, and both of which are related to the family. So in this Constitution, there is one vote for two proposed changes. So for this particular amendment, Article 39, the proposal involves the insertion of additional text to the two articles. So currently, as we have it, Article 41.1.1 says that the state recognizes the family as the natural, primary and fundamental unit group of society and as a moral institution possessing inalienable and imprescriptible rights antecedent and superior to all positive law. Now, the first proposed change to that article is that the state recognizes the family, whether founded on marriage or other durable relationships. And that's one that the state wants to um, mm. wants to change there, what they're asking people to change there. That'll be the new wording, uh, in other words, yeah. That will be yeah. the new wording yeah. there. And so the family founded on marriage is seen as the unit based on marriage between two people without distinction as to their sex. Mm. And currently, while there's no um, clear definition of durable relationships, the information provided for the purpose of this referendum refers to family founded on other durable relationships as meaning a family based on different types of commitment and continued relationship other than marriage. So different types of family units will have the, the same uh, constitutional rights and, uh, and protection. So that's the first, the first amendment uh, for the 39. The second one is proposing the change uh, to delete the text in Article 41.3.1. Currently, it reads that the state pledges itself to guard with special care the institution of marriage. Mm-hmm. on which the family is founded to protect it against attack. And so what, what's been asked in this um, referendum is that it would read the state pledges to delete which on which the family is founded and to have it read the state pledges itself to guard with special care the institution of marriage on which the family is founded and to protect it against um um, attack. Mm-hmm. So that's the 39th Amendment, which is the one on the family. Okay. And then we have the 40th Amendment, which is asking that um, Articles 41.2.1 and 41.2.2, that they are both completely deleted and is replaced with Article 42B. So I know it's, it's, it's a lot of technicality. Yep. It's yes. complicated, and that's why people undoubtedly <laughs> have questions and are uncertain. Uh, but you'll have uh, a number of people there with you to try and unravel this for people who are confused Absolutely. and they'll be able to They're take questions. 
Absolutely. There are people who are not sure how they want to vote. Tonight is really about information. You know, no one's going to tell anyone how to vote. Just come and, you know, even share what your thoughts are on the referendum. Mm. You know, what do you think? How do you think it impacts you as a parent, as a woman, as a member of a family? How does it impact you? Share that. So we're, we're, the idea is for us to put us together and be very, very clear as to what we're voting on. It's your right. The, the, the Constitution is literally like a reserved function for Irish citizens. Mm-hmm. And so you have to understand as an Irish citizen that this is where you have a strong power used to, to use your vote to determine how you want our country to function. And so if people feel, oh, I don't really understand it, I'm not going to sit on the fence and I'm not going to vote, Mm. then it's definitely, whichever way, it will impact our society. So it's better to be informed, to know how exactly you want to vote, where you want to go, and vote with your values. Vote based on Mm. your values. Vote on your conscience. Vote on what matters to you and the kind of Ireland you want. No point in giving out about it afterwards either. Uh, I mean, if you want a a yes, yes result, no point in giving out if it's a no, no result and vice versa. If you want a no, no result, no point in giving out afterwards. If uh, the outcome doesn't go your way, it's your opportunity to exercise your democratic right and that'll be on the 8th of March. Information this evening, as you say, Yemi, in the Ardboyne Hotel. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. From 7 o'clock until 8.30 this evening, if people are interested or if they have questions or, as you said, if they wish to share their own feelings on the proposals. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Fine Gael Councillor Yemi Adenuga. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. We've a text from somebody who says, Michael the Schlee Russell in Cavan is going uh, up for sale. Why doesn't the government buy that and use uh, the Neuromore and Carrick Macross that's uh, closed there, uh, sitting idle? Uh, what's wrong with that? Uh, why uh, can't the government uh, use these buildings uh, for housing uh, refugees or asylum seekers? Brian in touch with us saying the MTI building at Magdalen Street uh, is a monument 
uh, Brian says, to the IDA's neglect of Drogheda over decades. Big town in the centre of Drogheda. It could be easily converted to accommodate international protection applicants, he says. Uh, occupants could be provided with meal vouchers uh, and that would benefit our many excellent local cafes and restaurants uh, and we could keep our hotel. What a, a disgrace, Brian says, that just when Drogheda finally secured destination town status, our largest and only remaining hotel in the historic centre is taken off the pitch. Thanks uh, for sharing your thoughts with us uh, this morning, Brian. Uh, a number of people in touch with us, uh, Stephen in Drogheda, about Drogheda, saying it was sad to see the Abbey Shopping Centre, the first shopping centre in the town, closed down. It's like a ghost town now. When the cinema was there, I remember as a teenager going to see some great films like Grease and Jaws, uh, and he says he wonders what's going to happen now. What about the permanent TSB bank on West Street? Uh, that's empty and lying idle too. What's happening with that, he, he wants to know. Thanks uh, uh, for your text, uh, Stephen. Uh, a massive building convent on the Dublin Road could be used, as somebody says, instead of the hotel. Uh, Kevin Faulkner of Drogheda's Taxi Federation says, Hi Michael, just to mention the taxi business in Drogheda, we're going to lose revenue over this decision to stop taking in tourists and visitors. Taxis pick up and drop off at the D Hotel every day of the week and I'm sure that there are other businesses who are going to lose out over this decision. Thanks uh, for that and uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, we'd uh, somebody else uh, in touch who says I'm getting a bit sick and tired of putting on the radio every time I put on the radio the, I'm listening to about the D Hotel uh, and its business there was no protest when uh, the only place uh, that you could bring kids and grandkids was closed uh, uh, as well uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen there says our, our caller um, we had somebody else uh, who was a Drogheda resident at Science says they were at the protest on Saturday heard one of uh, the election candidates uh, f- speaking uh, at the protest uh, and uh, was concerned that they didn't have much to say about uh, the hotel itself and the importance of the hotel to people in the town. Um, we would another text then from a caller who uh, has been in touch with us about RTE uh, because, of course, RTE continues to be under pressure uh, and they refer to confidential confidentiality clauses uh, uh, with these uh, uh, outgoing payments uh, on redundancy payoffs as our caller puts it this is Paddy in Terman Fackett who says I, I'm just a layman but uh, would any rules or laws be broken if uh, they said how much was paid, if there's a confidentiality clause uh, in the agreement, would it not break that clause? Well, that's what RTE is saying, Paddy. That's uh, the case. Uh, I think a lot of politicians are saying they still want to know anyway. But thank you uh, for your message. Our phone number, if you want to comment on the programme today, is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm. Michael Reed on LMFM. Of course, we've been hearing a lot about uh, the D Hotel in uh, Drogheda. The contracts are, are signed. 500 international protection applicants are, are to move into the hotel from the 5th of March. That's the story uh, as we know it up to this point. Uh, as you heard last week, Labour Party TD Jed Nash was suggesting that perhaps uh, it could be 
a dual-purpose hotel so that some parts of the hotel would house international protection applicants and other parts of the hotel would see paid hotel guests come to the town, stay in the hotel and continue uh, to be part of the tourism industry. The Taoiseach, Leo Radker, spoke to the Irish Times over the hotel and Conor Gallagher reports that the Taoiseach has signalled a partial reversal uh, of the decision to use uh, the hotel in its entirety as an accommodation centre for immigrants. Part of the hotel, the article says, may now remain in use as a commercial premises. Whilst the Taoiseach said that other hotels in the town currently used for accommodating Ukrainian refugees may also be brought back into use. Now, that's what the Taoiseach has said to the Irish Times. This is what uh, the Minister for Integration had to say to the Shannon about that proposal on Friday. In terms of our approach to hotels and deputy, you asked the question about shared use of hotels and the like. And that does happen sometimes, usually when the hotel is providing accommodation for adults, usually when it's adult males. And in those situations, we can look at some sort of shared uh, use uh, approach. Where a hotel is being used for children, though, and that's the case here, it'll be families, there are significant complications there, particularly in terms of, 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 of child protection. And look, uh, you know, again, we're the Department of Integration, but as the Department of Children, those child protection elements are, are, are obviously hugely uh, important for us. Yeah, that's uh, Roderick O'Gorman, the Minister for Integration, speaking in the Shannon on Thursday, as it was. Uh, Jed Nash is with us in studio. Good morning to you, Deputy. Morning, Thanks for coming in to us. Uh, where is this at? Uh, I mean, we've conflicting uh, stories there, if you like, from uh, the Taoiseach and from the Frontline Minister. Yeah, well, last last um, Wednesday night, when, uh, I, I'd organised a meeting with um, the Minister of Integration, Roger O'Gorman, uh, and uh, for as well the two of the local Drogheda based deputies, uh, Fergus O'Dowd and Amela Munster. And um, I'm a solutions orientated and public representative. I could decide that as an opposition member simply to complain about the fact that Drogheda um, is set to lose 56% of our uh, tourism accommodation in terms of our town centre hotel but I decided actually to go and look for solutions and one of the potential solutions uh, could possibly be the dual use of the, the hotel. I put that to the Minister and the Minister caveated that uh, on the basis of some of the remarks that he made there to Shannon the other day that potentially there could be child protection issues um, and other uh, factors so he wasn't prepared to commit uh, to that but I spoke to him again on Friday uh, and we uh, were in communication as well on, on Saturday. And I've asked him uh, in the interests of the local economy here in Drogheda to explore that. Uh, and I wanted him to do that on the basis that uh, we could develop a constructive solution here that could potentially work um, in practice. Now, um, the Minister <coughs> uh, has said to me directly, uh, and, and this, this, this was evidenced by his remarks uh, on Wednesday night at our hour-long meeting, which was also attended by the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, that there could be, for example, child protection issues uh, in terms of dividing up a hotel for those use, uses. We have an example up the road, uh, Michael, uh, in my own constituency, in Louth. The Crown Plaza Hotel uh, has accommodated and continues to accommodate a number of Ukrainian families, while at the same time operating as a commercial use. So the precedent is there. Uh, I want him to explore that. And if it's a case that the Minister um, decides that this is not a runner, he needs to explain to me, to the people of Drogheda and to local businesses, why that 
cannot happen. He has an obligation yeah. and an onus, I think, and responsibility to explore this. And I think he and Atishik knows that, um, given what we've experienced here in Drada in recent times, given the um, depth of of of, of concern uh, about the impact on the local economy, that um, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Green Party are in difficulty explaining this issue uh, to the people um, of the area. Yeah. Uh, and before I, I, I proceed, can, can I say, Michael, um, that um, y- yesterday, oh, sorry, Saturday in Drogheda, a lot of people were very, very anxious um, about what could potentially uh, unravel there. And I want to pay credit to the 40,000 people in Drogheda who did not um, attend uh, that particular protest. They understood, I think, what the motivation of that protest was. And to be fair to lots of people who did attend that protest, who many of whom I spoke to yesterday and later on Saturday, um, they were concerned. Uh, they went down for a look. They were entitled to do that in this democracy to see what was being said. Uh, and they did not like what they saw. Um, so I think now, um, uh, as the dust settles, as it were, um, and public representatives uh, have a clearer focus on solutions on this, really, that proposition needs to be, I think, investigated. Mm. And as well, I asked today of the Minister for Enterprise and the Minister for Tourism to look at putting together an economic mitigation package uh, for uh, local retailers uh, and hospitality owners who will be impacted uh, by the potential loss of these beds. Well, we have, for example, a model through the Drug Implementation Board, uh, mm-hmm. where the Drug Implementation Board, for example, could be could be used. Local enterprise but office as the, well, but not by the D Hotel. I mean, it would be no. funded by the Exchequer, so this would be an additional cost to the twenty five million euro over the two years. <coughs> and if we're right in that guesstimate as to the value of this contract for the hotel, and we have to say that that is just a guesstimate that it has not uh, been confirmed. But for right uh, in making that guesstimate, if the hotel was to make a portion of its premises available for paid guests, if nobody wanted the rooms, undoubtedly the government would have to cover the loss of revenue there that it would have enjoyed otherwise if it had been used. That £25 has to be guaranteed, doesn't it, at this stage? Well, I'm no expert on uh, contract law, uh, but uh, I have been a government minister uh, sitting in a cabinet. Uh, and I have some experience uh, of uh, deciding on balance to, for example, overrule uh, the advice that I might receive from officials. Um, ministers of wide-ranging powers and political decisions are made because of the impact uh, on a society, on a community, on a local economy, all of the time. But a legally binding contract puts you in a position where if you change the terms of that contract, you have to honour the value of it, do you not? There may very well be implications uh, in that regard, but that is something that I think government has to uh, balance and something that government has to uh, consider. Uh, I know, of course, that will be resisted by those who represent um, the hotel and, and the hotel itself. This is the problem, of course, when you privatise what should be a public service. I mean, remember, uh, the state has not built a single modular unit on state-owned land yeah. to accommodate uh, international protection applicants who may be f- fleeing drama or persecution, hasn't built a single modular unit to accommodate those fleeing the war in Ukraine. Yeah. So this is on the government, and there is an obligation on them to provide a, a solution, an obligation on the government parties to do that. Would and you- I'm prepared as an opposition yeah. TD to work with them to do that in the interests of my community. Would you accept uh, the solution that we heard uh, inferred to by the minister there, which is that it could be used in part for international protection applicants if those applicants are single males? Uh, would you be willing to accept that just single males 
are housed in the D Hotel and do you think people in Drogheda would be happy with well, that? I think that's a red herring and I'll tell you why. Um, the decision has already been taken to accommodate families in the area and as I said earlier on in my contribution, mm. we have an example up the road and I worked on this issue in terms mm. of the Crown Plaza, Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian refugees, uh, they're actually, uh, there are families there, there are children accommodated and at the same time uh, there are uh, many, many beds there that are available for mm. commercial But is the part of the hotel cordoned off from the well, paid guests? That's, that's that, what, I mean, this is that, where the child protection that, issues come in. That's why I asked yeah. actually mm-hmm. the Minister mm-hmm. to uh, look at an engineering and a technical solution to this. There are a number of floors in a D hotel. Uh, I, 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 I think this, this ought to be feasible uh, and I think there's an onus on the Minister to uh, examine this and to explain to the people of Drogheda and explain to me in detail why uh, after a period of, 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 of seeking to address this and, 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 and examining it, why, why it may not be um, be done. What I'd suggested as well, and I know that Loud County Council would not be found wanting in this regard, is that where there would be potentially a shortfall, because our, our, our focus here has to be mm. on the fact that, and, and let's agree this, in principle, Drogheda has agreed to accept 500 additional international protection applicants. We can do that. We have an obligation, moral, ethical and legal, to do that, to play our role. Drogheda accepts that. Um, one of the ways where we could address that shortfall would be to identify the kinds of buildings that we all know have been vacant and derelict in this town. Actually could be an injection of you know, revitalisation, as it were, in, in this town, mm. where the state actually could better use money rather than putting it to private interests into buildings that could in the future then be turned around to be used in the first instance for international protection applicants and then subsequently uh, by the local community or indeed local businesses, whatever the case might be, uh, for our town. That mm. would be a better uh, investment of public money all around anyway. Mm, the protest that you mentioned on Saturday uh, was one uh, that led, as you uh, just said a moment ago, to anxiety amongst a, a lot of residents for various different reasons based on the experience of protests that have taken place, anti-immigrant protests that have taken place uh, across the country in, in recent months. It was a, a damp squib, as it turned out. A handful of people turned up as such, uh, maybe 300 uh, as you said as well, it's a population of over 40,000, close to 41,000 people living in Drada and in that context not a, a lot of people. Do you think that will be the end of the protests or will there be more? Uh, I suspect that there probably will be more. Um, there's a very small unrepresentative uh, group of people who are agitating uh, in this regard. Uh, I think we all know what the purpose of that demonstration was the other day. It's not about our local economy. It's not about um, public services. Um, it's not about um, uh, having an open, honest debate about you know immigration in this country and how we accommodate international protection applicants. Um, I, I had heard and I've seen online, um, you know, some of the, you know, homophobic remarks were made. Uh, um, you know, you know, I think uh, you know some of the people who spoke uh, at, at that um, demonstration are you know well known for their their political views. Uh, that thankfully those political views haven't commanded um, electoral support mm. in, in this country. Um, because I think fundamentally um, the people of Ireland uh, are decent. They understand that the world is complex. Uh, Drogheda itself, as we have seen the other day, mm. and time and again every time we're challenged, we have a history of social solidarity, history of tolerance, a history of pluralism. We are a good, decent place. And yes, while there are issues and there are concerns about the use of this hotel, I think what was proven yesterday was what I had said to the Minister, to the Taoiseach time and time again, that for the vast, vast majority of the people of Drogheda, um, the anxiety and the concern has been about losing 56% of our uh, total um, town centre hotel beds. 
that's the long and the short of it. Because mm. the people of Drogheda are decent. We're known for our social solidarity. We're known for our tolerance. And we will embrace people. Mm. And I imagine there's a few who would argue with that. Uh, would you argue with uh, the crowd numbers? I, I saw people online suggesting 15,000 turned out on Saturday. I wouldn't argue with the crowd numbers. <laughs> there were a couple of hundred people there, weren't okay. there? Yeah. All right, not 15,000. <laughs> and the thing about it is there were 40,000 Rohedians who weren't there. Yeah, yeah, and you'd wonder why. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning, Labour Party TD, for Louth and East Beath, Jed Nash. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we were talking about the referendums uh, that you'll be able to vote on the 8th of March in, uh, and indeed there'll be a further chance, uh, another chance to vote uh, on a couple of uh, elections taking place in June, the local elections and the European elections. But of course, if you're going to vote, you can only do so if you're registered to vote. Paul Gordon, Director of Policy and Advocacy with the National Youth Council of Ireland, joins us. Now, good morning to you, Paul. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, I take there's a, a lot of young voters who've never gone out to vote t- before, and these are the people you want to speak to today. Good morning, Michael. Thanks very much for having me. And yes, you're absolutely correct. Um, there are a number of young people who haven't voted before. So, for example, in the past year, about 70,000 young people have turned 18 and have become eligible to vote in the last, uh, in the last, the last year. Um, and we know that uh, while the vast majority of young people do want to vote, um, many are not aware that they do have to register and um, the deadline uh, for registration, if you'd like to vote in all of the uh, events this year, including the referendums in less than, than three weeks and uh, later on in the year, obviously, as you've mentioned, the uh, local and European and potentially a general election, um, the deadline for registration is tomorrow at 5pm and we're urging um, all young people uh, to get out and, and, and register and it's a, a process that has become uh, much easier than it was in the past. All right, 70,000 people turned 18 in the last year. That seems an awful lot. Or Is that normal? Uh, that is normal, but we do have a growing uh, youth population. I think there's a lot of commentary about um, Ireland having an ageing population, but we do also, at the other end of the scale, have a growing youth population. And there are over 730,000 young people uh, under the age of 30 um, who, who can vote. Uh, and that represents and that represents about uh, one in five uh, of those of voting age in Ireland. So it is a significant cohort of the population that could prove quite influential in the referendums and elections throughout well, the year. Uh, it's one in five, as you say, uh, aged between 18 and 29 of eligible voters, and every vote counts. Uh, that's something that some people don't take into account. Uh, what difference will it make if I vote? Uh, sure, it'll just be lost in the millions of votes that are, are, are cast. But it, it can be quite narrow in terms of margins when these votes are counted, can't it? Absolutely, and that's really why we want to see as many people, uh, and young people in particular, as possible register, because we know that many uh, may not have registered before. There may have been uh, uh, challenges, particularly maybe for students who uh, they they have their vote at their home address and they might be studying at, uh, at DKIT, for example. Um, but the process has become much easier than it was in the past. So now, that, now you can do uh, everything online, thanks to recent reforms. Uh, so you can go to checkregister.ie. Um, the process is very quick and simple. It can be completed in a couple of minutes. Uh, all you really need is a PPS number, date of birth and an air code. And likewise, for those who might want to uh, change address, who might be studying um, and who won't be able to get home for a, a, a Friday 
uh, referendum. They can change their vote to their their, their current address. Um, so it is uh, much easier uh, than it was before. Mm. And as I said, check the registrar's website. And if anyone has any, I suppose, uh, FAQ or questions they'd like to ask about uh, uh, who are first-time voters, they can go to youth.ie forward slash vote and learn a little bit more first before they register if they'd like. Okay, that's a, a dedicated section on your own website, youth.ie forward slash vote. Uh, but if people want to register, as you say, check the register.ie and uh, follow the easy to follow instructions. Thank you indeed, Paul, for joining us uh, this morning. And we hope uh, that every young person who has uh, the right to vote will exercise their democratic right. Paul Gordon, by the way, is a director of policy and advocacy with uh, the National Youth Council of Ireland. Now, let's turn our attention to something altogether different because last week members of the North South Youth Forum were in Leinster House uh, to speak uh, with uh, the members of the Joint Committee on the Implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. Two of the young people who spoke to the committee members were from Dundalk. One of those is Hannah Morton, the other Sarah Whelan. My name is Sarah and my pronouns are she, her. And my name's Hannah. My pronouns are she, her. Ladies and gentlemen, esteemed members of the committee and fellow young advocates, today I stand before you as a representative of the young people in our community. We are a resilient and passionate group, but we often find ourselves overlooked when vital services are being ruled out. Our voices matter, and it's time to amplify them. Let me paint a picture of our reality. Our neighbouring community, Coxes, enjoy community house and full-time youth services. Their transport options are well timetabled, seamlessly connecting them to the resources they need. But what about us? Our areas remain further away from essential amenities, like shops, leaving us isolated and underserved. Our local football, Astrid once a hub of activity, was recently sacrificed to make way for the new Smith's Toys distribution centre. While progress is essential, it shouldn't come at the cost of our recreational spaces. We gather once a week in a crash, grateful but aware that it falls short of our aspirations. We yearn for a space that we can truly call our own, a haven where we can access information tailored to our age group. Imagine a place where we can find signposts to mental health services, employment opportunities and vital support networks, a space that nurtures our growth and wellbeing. The wider impact of public transport. Our plea extends beyond our generation. The need for public transport affects everyone. It's about accessibility, connectivity and environmental responsibility. When we improve transport options, we uplift entire communities. So dear leaders, let us collaborate. Let us create a dedicated youth centre, a beacon of empowerment, a place where our dreams can take root, where we can learn, connect and thrive. Let us invest in our future, recognising that better services for young people benefit us all. Thank you for listening and let us work together to build a brighter tomorrow, one where no young person feels overlooked or left behind. As I say, that's Hannah Morton and uh, she was speaking in front of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on the Implementation of uh, the Good Friday Agreement uh, along with Sarah Whelan. So us in New York uh, in County Loud, see we share our, like where we meet up for our youth group, we share with a crash, so like younger kids when we go in, like we don't have our own like space to like we don't have our own space to like meet up and stuff. You see, we want our own, like we're lacking that like funding to get our own service. We want our own little place we can call our like little home and just be able to just like feel comfortable in it, design it, make it feel like for us. And because we're sharing with like the young kids, like there's just, it's just like, you know, like it's, we're grateful for obviously that we've like a room to like obviously do our youth uh, service and meet up and stuff. But we just want our own and a place to call our own. And also, um, 
were lacking in cedars in our area also as well. There used to be like shops. See, those buildings are vacant. I feel like we could like transform one of them into our little uh, youth club and just use that as us as a meeting group as we just need the funding and we just want to look into maybe like just having our own little area and I think we'd all benefit in that and um, we'd all be very grateful and appreciative for that. Sarah Whelan telling the politicians what young people in Dundalk want. In our Dundalk area we have um, a youth centre in the centre of the town but um, they provide a lot of better services and a lot more services. We just, But the only one problem is that we tackle is lack of transport. You see, down in our area in Tuberuna, like we we provide and rely on bus airing and usually the bus doesn't really come. It always arrives late or it doesn't arrive at all and people in our area depend on that, whether it's for school or for work education. And I feel like it is really important that we get um, a better... Like, like the bus services, like make sure it comes on time because um, we're lacking in transport and to get to the town centre and with the buses being late, I feel like if we were to improve that, we'd be able to go into the town centre, into this youth centre and um, we could even possibly use it to um, <coughs> gather around and all that stuff. It's just transport. In our, like We just want better services in Dundalk and also on the outskirts of Dundalk. Like, we don't want to complain about what others have, but I feel like... Um, if we all get better services for all the youth in Dundalk, I feel like we'd all be, um, I feel like it'd be an essential thing that we'd need. Nice, there you go. That's two young people from Dundalk, Sarah Whelan and Hannah Morton, who were both speaking in Leinster House last week, two members of uh, the implementation of uh, the Good Friday Agreement Committee. Excellent stuff. Uh, They certainly were left in no doubt about what the young people thought they need to improve their lives in Dundalk. Angela, thank you for your text to the programme this morning. Angela says, Michael, what about Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda? It's struggling at the moment. The doctors uh, are two GPs, like you can't get appointments. Dentists, no appointments. We need to look into sorting out these problems before we add more people to the town. Thanks uh, uh, very much for that, Angela. Uh, and I think that's a, an opinion that a lot of people have expressed because 500 people are coming to the town. Uh, what is going to happen in Drogheda when 20,000 people arrive to the town to move into all of the new houses along the Northern Cross route? Uh, somebody else saying half uh, the D Hotel for refugees and half uh, for tourism uh, doesn't think it's going to work. This is the proposal that we heard about last week, uh, which seems to have uh, the support of uh, the Taoiseach. Uh, Jed Nash had proposed that it would be a dual purpose hotel. Uh, the ministers we heard then saying that there's uh, child protection concerns, but can that be overcome? Paddy and Terman Feckham was on to us earlier on about RTE's confidentiality clauses. I, I think I misinterpreted what Paddy was saying because he got back in touch and he was saying that if there were business rules or laws broken in how these payments were decided on, well, maybe that would trump the confidentiality clause. I, I don't expect you to reread it. Oh, no problem at all. Paddy, keep texting. and We'd love to hear from you. That's uh, what makes the show tick is people's opinions uh, but yeah I think what we're hearing is that no rules were broken uh, the question is why were people rewarded as much as they were uh, if you like uh, when they were leaving uh, RTA uh, and one of the questions is especially under the circumstance uh, where you've somebody who oversaw the loss 
of a project um, uh, or a project that lost 2.3 million euro. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for your message to the programme uh, this morning. Uh, somebody else in touch uh, with us. Uh, this is uh, Liz, I think, who says uh, that Roderick O'Gorman, the minister, sounds like he's playing on some people's fears uh, about single males. Uh, either take some single males and retain the use of the hotel or take uh, families and no use of the hotel. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for that, Liz. And indeed, thank you to everybody who's been in touch with us uh, so far this morning. I'm just going to uh, go back uh, to the doll and uh, another issue, another local issue that was raised in uh, the doll last week uh, by Sinn Féin TD, Darren O'Rourke. Anthony Allen is from Kells in County Meath. He has advanced motor neuron disease and has been an inpatient in ICU at Cavan General Hospital since Valentine's Day 2023, one year tomorrow. Since March of last year, 11 months ago at this stage, his medical team have supported the plan to discharge Mr Allen home, but because of his high level of need, this will require a specialised home care package. They haven't been able to secure this. In the meantime, Mr Mr Allen continues to occupy a much-needed ICU bed, and he and his loving family grow increasingly frustrated. Can I ask... What measures are being taken to ensure home care packages can be secured and for the Taoiseach and Minister to intervene in this case? Come thank you, on. Minister Butler. Um, Deputy, thank you very much um, for the issue you raised. In relation to home care, the budget um, being provided me uh, this year by the government is €726 million. Euro. So today, as I stand here, approximately 56,000 people, the length and breadth of the country, are receiving home care. I know at times there are challenges, so if you want to send me on the details of the specific case, and I will have it looked into and will engage with you. Okay, that's uh, Minister Mary Butler. Uh, hopefully good news for Anthony Allen in her response, and best wishes to you, Anthony, and uh, indeed your family. The Minister was responding to Sinn Féin TD, Darren, Work, Darren O'Rourke. Now to uh, some con- uh, concerns or an issue that a- another local person has, uh, and uh, this was raised in the Dáil again last week, this time though by Fine Gael TD, Fergus out. Significant funding has been provided by Minister Humphreys in relation to a voucher scheme so that people who are deaf can purchase sign language interpreters for essential uh, private and personal issues. Uh, unfortunately, the Citizens Information Board has suspended this scheme with immediate effect, causing significant concern and worries for people who are deaf, and in particular the Irish Deaf Society. Could the Minister intervene with the Citizens Information Board to ensure a constructive outcome from this engagement? Thank you, Deputy uh, uh, O'Dowd, for raising this matter. Uh, I uh, was made aware of it late last week, uh, and uh, obviously the Irish Deaf Society have been in contact with me. So as we speak, my officials are engaging with uh, with all the stakeholders, both CI, um, CIB and the Irish Deaf, um, the, the, the sign language um, organisation as well. So I'll keep you abreast of, uh, of uh, uh, how they get on. Yeah, that's uh, Heather Humphreys, the minister on that occasion, responding to Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd. Michael Reed on LMFM. All right, what is the EU's nature restoration law going to mean in practice? Well, according to the INHFA, you are looking at a situation which will challenge 
people in implementing uh, this law in uh, this country uh, where there are farmed ecosystems and indeed uh, there is an onus on the state to put in place the restoration measures that are necessary to re-establish the habitat types that is listed uh, in the hidden print, if you like, in this law. Let's uh, speak now to Vincent Roddy, who's uh, the president of uh, the Irish Natura and Hill Farmers Association. And a very good morning to you, Vincent. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You're asking politicians and stakeholders to acquaint themselves with uh, the legislation. What is it that you're concerned about? Hello? No? We don't have Vincent on the line, I beg your pardon. Now uh, We'll try and uh, re-establish that line and come back to Vincent uh, in uh, the next few minutes. Uh, but in the meantime, some of uh, the comments coming to us, um, we've uh, a lot of people in touch with us uh, talking about services as a result of asylum seekers uh, being housed. Uh, Clare and County Meath, one of them, saying, I hope uh, that they'll be putting in extra doctors, dentists, teachers... Uh, for overflowing schools as it is. Thank you indeed uh, for your message. A very similar message came to us uh, then uh, from somebody who said we're great uh, at letting people in but no new hospitals, doctors, schools, things are bad enough in Ireland without more people. Uh, We have to wait two weeks to get a a doctor's appointment alone and it's only going to get worse, says our caller. Thank you indeed uh, for your message. Our text number 086-1800-658. Now let's uh, go back uh, to uh, this uh, topic of uh, the EU's Nature Restoration Law, Vincent Roddy of INHFA on the line. Good morning to you, Vincent. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. You're concerned about what's actually in this legislation and that people uh, may not be aware. You're calling on politicians and stakeholders to acquaint themselves with the fine print, the small print. Uh, What is it you're concerned about and what do you believe it it, uh, obligates this state to do? Okay, good morning, Michael. And I suppose uh, 10 minutes might be difficult to, to, to explain every, every issue of concern. But yes, firstly, just to, to make the point um, that we are asking all our politicians, uh, clearly our MEPs who are going to vote on this in Strasbourg, I think it's the 27th uh, of this month. Uh, so they're going to vote on this. So we're clearly asking them to, make, to, to, to get into the fine print of this because there are major concerns, uh, and those major concerns relate to what is going to be expected to farmers. And, and effectively, Michael... Farmers on peat soils in particular and what they call Annex 1 habitat are going to see massive changes uh, to, to how they're farmed and even uh, actually as you can whether they'll be allowed to farm in a particular manner and indeed farming at all. So, so that's, that's at the root of the issue. Mm. Um, or or, or if the ground will be suitable for farming, probably better put, I take it, your concern is to do with re-wetting, is it? Well, re-wetting, yeah. And, and look, uh, that's the one that most people are quite familiar with. Um, and, and we would with major co- with major concerns around that. Um, and, and look at this moment in time when you look uh, at the way the European Union looks at these drained peat soils. And I know there will be a certain amount of those in, in Louth and Peat. They're all over the country. They're predominantly a lot of them are in the west. But how they look at those drained peat soils? They're, they're saying these drained peat soils are emitting carbon. That's the view. Uh, if they're emitting carbon, then then they're they're deemed to be a damaged ecosystem. That's how the EU interprets them. We would, we, we would argue that, but I mean, we don't need to get into that. So, mm. Well, 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 it's a double whammy, isn't it? Because they act as a sponge as well. When uh, you uh, farm the turf, uh, then uh, you have emissions. Uh, but if you don't, uh, it acts as a sponge uh, and takes in the emissions. 
Yeah, well, look, this is the this is the science behind it. They're saying that if you if you if you the idea of rewetting is that you raise the water table up, um, and you stop the emission of carbon. But here's the problem: what you see then is a takeoff in the emissions of methane, and methane from from a global warming point of view is far more is far more dangerous and far more toxic in, in that respect. Uh, now there is science around this, and, and some of that science they've done uh, they've done it on on just cutaway bogs where there hadn't been a farming activity. Now now they're saying the methane runs for a couple of decades, and then then then, then you get the benefit. But but what's, what what the issue is though, where there has been farming activity and there has been a build-up of organic material because of that farming activity, then the methane emissions and this is a report that was done in Galway in East Galway, the methane emissions can run for up to two, two centuries mm. afterwards. So clearly there's there, there's a, there's an issue around the science, and I think. You know, I, I understand how people want to, to do what, what, what they believe is the right thing um, for, for, for the planet and, and all that. But we don't believe this is the right thing. And obviously, it's going to create massive problems around that. And why now, do you think it'll like, affect... Well, I'm sorry, just before you go to the other issue, why no, do you t- believe it'll uh, affect farmland? Uh, will it, will it no, not be well, state is, land? No, yeah, no, I'm... You know, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, look, this is one of the this is one of the issues that has been brought. They said, look, we can do all this in state land. There isn't enough state land to do that. That's the reality. Now, there is enough state land. We will get to 2030 with the state land if you look at culture and border and border land. But from once we get past 2030, then we're going to have to start moving into private land. And, and Article 9 of this law clearly states that, that, that we are going to have to look at, at those lands. And, and what they do say, and this is the issue that we're saying, they're saying rewetting is voluntary. What they're saying, restoration isn't, and that's the issue. And the only way you can re- you can restore these drained peat soils is through wetting, because you have to get the sphagnum moss growing. That's the whole point of it. So, so you have to you have to raise the water tables in order to to, to deliver the restoration that the law requires. Um, now, and the issue, I suppose, Michael, that we see around this as well is that if they are seeing these as damaged ecosystems, then for farmers that are getting cap payments. There is a requirement that those cap payments that farmers have to comply with what's called good agricultural and environmental conditions. Mm. So, so if this is not, if the ecosystem, if the, if the soils are not seen to be in good agricultural condition or good environmental condition, then we may not qualify for baseline cap payments or we may not qualify for any cap payments. So is this That's a gun to the head of farmers? Uh, if you want to qualify for the payments, uh, you have to volunteer to re-wet the land? Well, there is that is an element that's in there, Michael, and uh, and I don't know if our politicians understand this. But the other point I, I, I do want to raise, and I think this is a point that a lot of politicians haven't haven't fully grasped, as well, is that I mean, we, we, at the moment in the in the EU Green Deal, they're talking about um, bringing in you know th- there's an issue with bringing in uh, food products from what they call damaged ecosystems. So, I mean, in particular, what they're talking about is beef coming in from cutaway rainforests in, in Brazil. Mm-hmm. So that's, and, and everyone would say no. And a lot of farmers, you'd hear them saying, you know, why are we doing that? And we're, we're not allowed to. Uh, but, but in this law, they call them, there's MER measures in this law. And those MER measures will also apply to what is perceived to be damaged ecosystems in Ireland. So, so potentially, what we're doing here is not alone saying you won't get cap payments, but we're saying that the food that has been produced in that land, whether that be beef, lamb, uh, or, or dairy produce, or whatever else, uh, could be seen to be tainted, and it could undermine the reputation of damage of Irish food uh, coming from that. And I know down here in, mm. in, in the west of Ireland we have uh, GPI, uh, uh, PGI for uh, Connemara Hill lamb. But if, if Connemara Hill lamb you know, is seen to be coming from the damaged ecosystem, then that PGI is going to be no good. There's also a PGI for, for Irish grass-fed beef, 
And when you consider a good bit of that grass-fed beef is coming from these drained peat soils, again, it's going to undermine that. Mm. I think a lot of our politicians haven't grasped this fact. Okay, Vincent, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Vincent Roddy, President of the Irish Natura and Hill Farmers Association, INHFA, brings our programme to its uh, conclusion this morning. Thanks to Maggie McGuire, who researched. Chris Murray was at the Control Tower line. Michael and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.